that's how they get Christ in them. Uh, the Lutherans believe that God changes it, but it's still the same thing, transubstantiation is what it's called. And then of course, uh, the doctrine of confession. We talked about how confession is not getting somebody's ear and buzzing their ear with everything, but it is simply confessing that you have been living in sin or you, you confess that your ways were wrong, you went, you've been doing the wrong way, and that you have chosen to walk with God. So you say, I used to be a sinner, but I'm not anymore. That's a confession that you're no longer a sinner. It's a general thing, not a specific thing. And uh, confession came to be a thing where that people would confess their faults to a priest, and then he would be able to tell them what they had to do to have their sins forgiven for that, because of that confession. This was never originally in the original teachings at all. And uh, <clears throat> so and we also have that confession can also be a witness or be an acknowledgement. In other words, we confess the Lord Jesus Christ. That's saying Jesus Christ is almighty God. He is king of kings, Lord of lords. That's confessing the Lord, so forth. We talked about that as well. And then uh, we, <clears throat> we talked about uh, mass here. I'm gonna uh, elaborate a little bit further on this today. And we talked about how that mass was a thing where that people, that it, where that the, the Catholic Church had turned communion, uh, this part of communion into a mass where people had to do this on a regular basis. In other words, it was every day or every week or every time they came to church, they received communion, but they called it mass. And consequently, uh, the transubstantiation was, was imparted or took place at the time that they took mass. Now, I'm just gonna use one little reference here and then I'm gonna move on to these other uh, items here that I wanna talk to you about and then we're gonna finish this up today. And that, that is this, that along in this early stages here, in fact, is one of the first things that happened here. Uh, there was, there began to be a separation of clergy and laity so that everything that was spiritual was always by the leadership of the clergy. The laity never had any part in that. They simply were followers. And so that men who were clergy, that could be a bishop, that could be a priest, it could be uh, you know, whatever office or title that, they, that he was given, uh, that nothing spiritual could be done without him being present and without him being there. So that you had a situation where that the church could not function without the bishop. And it became a doctrine or an early on thing that they had here. Now, this is not to take away from the great value of pastors, evangelists, leaders that the Bible says God has given us for the perfecting of the saints. But the, the Lord says this, and I want you to turn with me to this scripture. And this is the, the one that's found in Matthew 18, 20. I may have read this to you last week. If I did, we'll pick it up there and then move on from here. But uh, the Bible says this, this is Matthew 18:20. for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them, two or three. It doesn't, doesn't say who they are if they are God's people. If God's people, if two or three of any of us are gathered together, in the name of the Lord, the Lord is there. And that's a very important thing, to know that God is there when we are gathered together. What happened here, they said that unless the bishop was present, 
the Lord was not there unless the bishop. The bishop had to be there for communion. He had to be there for baptism. You know, did you know you have a right to baptize somebody? If you've been baptized in Jesus' name, you can baptize somebody. Yeah, you, you can. I mean, there's not to be a by, by a clergyman or a pastor or minister or anything, but anybody can baptize somebody. I knew a, a couple of brothers many years ago who came across each other and they'd been reading about Jesus' name baptism. They couldn't find anybody that had been baptized in Jesus' name to baptize them. And so they baptized each other. <laughs> so one baptized one, one baptized the other. They went on, went on preaching the gospel. Praise the Lord. I met a woman one time that uh, had never found anybody that had been to baptize her. So she said, told me, said, I baptized myself. I said, how'd you do that? She said, I, I just went uh, to a pier in the, in the bio or bay, wherever it was. And I just said, in Jesus' name, and I dove in. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what. I said, uh, let me just go ahead and baptize you, praise the Lord, and we'll make it make sure it's all okay. You know, I just did it that way. But I'm just saying that the Lord has made it where it's whosoever will, you know. It's not tied to individuals. Well, this thing about it being tied to individuals, as time went along, they began to lock down on everything, and nothing could happen spiritually unless they themselves were present. And so they gained control of the hearts and the lives of people. And all of these uh, falling away things were things that were introduced by a clergy who was trying to keep control of the laity. And God never intended to, for it to be that way. It's not, a, it's not a control thing. You well know that. That's why when you come to this church, you can worship God and you can praise the Lord and you can worship the Lord and everything. God, nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to tell you you can't. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I should. Well, I won't tell the names. And, but if I told the names, you'd know this preacher. But in, he and his wife went to a big Baptist church down in Miami. And he was unsaved. She was unsaved. And he, he said to her, we've got to get our lives straightened out. And uh, they were newly married people. They said, we just got to get on the right track. So they went to this big denominational church in Miami. And uh, so he says, the preacher preached, and he says, what do we do now? She said, well, I, when I was a girl, I went to a Pentecostal Sunday school, and everybody goes down to the altar. <laughs> so, so he said, let's go. So they got up and they walked down. You know, he had been an alcoholic. He just said, we got to get our lives straightened out. They went down the altar and got down there and started praying and everything. It wasn't long the people came there and talked to Pat and children and says, you can't do that. And they took them away, you know, and took them into a side room and gave them some instructions and everything and everything. And that was the end of their experience in that particular denominational church. Uh, later on, she said, I, I know a Pentecostal church. We'll go there and they'll let you pray, you know. So they did, and sure enough, they prayed through and received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and he pastors a great church to this day. And so I'm just telling you all of that because it's never God's will or plan that anybody control, control the body of Christ. Jesus controls the body of the Christ. We are God's people. We are God's people. Praise the Lord. He appoints shepherds. He appoints evangelists, teachers, and so forth. Uh, along the way and of course they guide and direct us but they do not control our lives and we don't intend for it never and never have wanted them to do that so confession was brought about by saying we control you we control all your sins you can't have them forgiven unless we forgive them and of course mass was introduced in that same fashion and so forth 
And now I want to go into this subject of Mariolatry. I'm going to move this, uh, this way a little bit here. And we're going to work on down through the end of this falling away period of time. And I'm going to start with the one here, Mariolatry. I think I am as, as large as I can make it. No, I'm not. Okay, good. Can you see that better? All right. Let's put it like here. We'll start with the uh, Mariolatry up here. And I'm going to talk about that, where that came from and so forth. Uh, Mariolatry is the worship of Mary. It's the worship of Mary. And uh, there's a statement that is used in the Catholic Church that's called the Immaculate Conception. In error, in error, I made the statement here in the pulpit here several weeks ago, in error, that Immaculate Conception was the conception of Jesus of Mary from God, she, when she conceived, when she conceived Jesus Christ from God, that was the Immaculate Conception. In further research, in further study, I realized and saw and found out that the Immaculate Conception is not that Jesus was perfect and without sin, and that she was conceived of God, but that Mary herself, in her conception, when she before she was born that her sins were remitted and taken away so that she was born without sin. That's what Immaculate Conception is. And when I read the record in the, in the book, I was told to investigate it because you may find this to be the case, Brother Myers. And when I did, sure enough, it says it's misunderstood and many, many believe that it is, the, it, is the, uh, it is the birth of Christ. It is conception of Christ that's in reference to, but it is not. It is about Mary and sure enough, that individual was very right, and the book that I was reading, of course, was an authentic book on that information. And so I realized then that this is talking about Mary being without sin all her life so that she is qualified, therefore, to be above man and, therefore, can be worshipped. Now, I want to talk to you about this a little bit. I'm, let me just give you a base scripture, if you would. I want you to go to, to uh, Exodus uh, chapter 20. And Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 uh, are both the chapters on the Ten Commandments given to Moses in the wilderness. And I'm just going to read the very first few verses here. This is the first five verses of chapter 20 of, uh, of Exodus. And you could read either one. They would say pretty, uh, just about the same thing word, to word, word for word. And it says here in 20 and 1... God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This is the Lord now giving his first commandment, uh, the Ten Commandments to Moses to give to the children of Israel. And before they were written in stone, they were first uh, cried out and spoken out by the voice of the Lord from Mount Sinai. They, uh, the Lord spoke the words. They heard it with their own ears. The whole, all of Israel heard it from the top of the mount, from the mountain coming out. And it scared them to death. And they told Moses, this is so frightful. Whatever else he's got to say, God has to say, let him tell you, you write it down and we'll believe it. And then so forth. And that's the way it happened. But the first Ten Commandments was given in that fashion. And then later they were written in stone as Moses went up on the mountaintop and received it. Now, here's what it says in verse 3. Is where it starts. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Folks, if you've got your Bible, underline that. And that means everybody and everything. Amen. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
So when a person worships Mary, they are putting them equal or in the place of God. And it goes on to say, verse 4, Thou shalt make no unto thee no graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I am the Lord thy God. I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. And so the Lord says here, Thou shalt have no other God. This alone standing on its own ground should say Mariolatry is wrong. Mariolatry is wrong. But let me take it a little further. Because in time, Israel did fall away from the teachings here of this Ten Commandments, the very first commandment. And when Jesus referred to it, he said that the greatest commandment, the first commandment here, O Israel, uh, he said, Thou art to uh, love the Lord with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love the Lord, thy God, with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. That means if you do that with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, there's no more love or some other deity or some other idol or something else. Now, I'm going to uh, couple with that uh, this verse of scripture that I want you to see in Jeremiah. I want to show you what happened with Israel when Israel began to fall away from the Lord. And I'm reading from Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 16. And the Lord was telling Jeremiah, Israel is in big time trouble with me. And here's one of the reasons that they are. He says here in verse 16, this is 716 of Jeremiah. Therefore, pray not thou for this people. He's talking about, he's telling Jeremiah, don't even pray for Israel anymore. I'm going to judge them. And here's why I'm going to do it. Therefore, pray not anymore for this people, neither lift up nor cry prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? He's telling Jeremiah that, the Lord is. The children gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven. You see that? The queen of heaven. They were worshiping someone called the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto their gods that they may provoke me to anger. The queen of heaven was a deity of the Babylonians that these Jews had picked up on and they had begun to worship the queen of heaven. Now, later on, uh, Jerusalem was, was destroyed and uh, the Lord brought judgment on Jerusalem. And then the Lord sent Jeremiah down into Egypt where there were a bunch of Jews down there. And down in Egypt, a lot of them had fled down there. And he sent Jeremiah down there, still in Jeremiah. And I'm going to jump over to the 44th chapter where he is down in Egypt. 44th chapter of Jeremiah. The word that came to Jeremiah according, uh, concerning all the Jews which dwell in the land of Egypt. And he goes on to talking about that. Verse 2 even identifies the fact that Jerusalem is destroyed. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, ye have seen all the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, upon all the cities of Judea. And behold, this city, they are desolations, and no man dwelleth therein. This, he's talking about Jerusalem now. And he said, in other words, I've done all of that. And now I'm jumping down to verse 13 to show you the crux of the matter and what Jeremiah was to tell Verse 13, for I will punish them that dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. 
Then it goes on to say, and I'm saving time by sort of skipping some verses. Verse 15, then all the men which knew that their wives had burned incense unto other gods, and all the women that stood by a great multitude, even all the people that dwell in the land of Egypt, in Pathros, this is in Egypt, answered Jeremiah, saying, as for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. We will not do it. Now look at verse 17. But we will certainly do whatever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven, the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her as we have done, and so forth. And then down in verse 19, he even talks about the women telling Jeremiah, we're going to do what we want to do. And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings unto her, did we make her cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings unto her without, uh, without our men? The women are talking here. But jumping over to verse 25. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of us, saying, Ye and your wives have both spoken with your mouths, fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have vowed to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her. Ye will surely accomplish your vows. And so the Lord then said, I will punish you because you worship the queen of heaven. Now, who, who is this queen of heaven that is being spoken of here? The queen of heaven is a, was a woman by the name of Semiramis. Uh, Semiramis was the wife of Nimrod. I want you to go to Genesis. I don't want to confuse you here. And this is a real big, deep Bible study in itself. I'm just going to hit highlights. But go to Genesis chapter 10 for a moment. Chapter 10 of Genesis is the beginning of all nations in the world. And look at the very first verse. I'm going to show you something here. The very first verse of, uh, of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 10, I should say. And uh, it's called the... It's called the uh, chapter of nations, beginning of nations. And the very first verse says, and these are the generations of the sons of Noah, where Noah came out of the ark now, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. Then it goes on to talk about who begat who and so forth. And the whole chapter is about who's, who begat who and so forth right on down. Now look at verse 8. This is where I want to go here. And Cush, this is one of the uh, grandsons, one of the grandsons now of uh, one of them. I think it was, grandson, it was grandson of Noah. And Cush begat Nimrod. If you've got your Bible, underline the word Nimrod here. And it's the only one that's mentioned here in which there's a lot of information given. It says, Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, or Babylon. Uh, the word Babylon comes from Babel because that's where the languages were confounded four generations later in the generation of Nimrod when they tried to build a tower to Babel, to, to a tower of Babel, uh, to, to the moon or to the, up in the heavens. They tried to build that thing, and the Lord confounded their languages. That's where all the languages began. And so one guy one day said, hand me a brick, and he talked in Spanish. 
And the other one said, I don't know what you're saying. And he talked in German or, or Chinese or something. You know, they couldn't communicate. And, uh, and so the Lord divided them and made them quit building because he knew what they were doing was foolish. I mean, you know, a man in his early state may have looked up and thought, there's the moon, let's, let's build a tower up there to it, you know. And not knowing the moon is 250,000 miles away, you know, and there's no way they could ever do that. And so the Lord confounded their languages. Well, the one who started all that was, was the man Nimrod, and the city that he established was called Babel because people talked to each other and they couldn't understand each other and they babbled. You understand? They babbled each other and blah, 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 you know. So they were babbling to each other, so it was called Babylon, or came, the word Babylon came from that. So he was the, he was the, the beginning of the kingdom of Babel, and uh, they goes on to say, and of Eric and Akkad and Calneh and the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar is that land that's between the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, and that's where Babylon is, that's where, uh, that's where the Assyrian Empire was there for some time and so forth. Today, that is Iraq. All of that is the country of Iraq. And I won't go any further, but that's supposed to be the beginning of all of these nations and things. But Nimrod was the one who, it goes on, it goes on to say he was the one who started to build nations and empires. Josephus, uh, who was, who's an ancient historian, says that from him began all of these, uh, these armies and nations and divisions and conquering people and subjecting them to uh, to his will and so forth and he had a wife and her name was Semiramis and Semiramis and him controlled and ran everything and in time they began to be worshipped by the people as being gods and I won't go any further than that there's a lot of it you can read all about it in in the study of mythology mythology has got it is full of it uh, and everything is just there's volumes and volumes of study on it but uh, Semiramis, you know, goes by different names. And uh, she's known also by Rhea. She's also named after Minerva in Egypt. And that was in Upper Egypt, Lower Egypt. She's known as Isis, I-S-I-S. That's the same word that you hear now about these Muslims, but it has no connection, Isis, and so forth. And I tell you all of that because way back there in that ancient Babylon is where all of this, uh, this polytheism, the worship of many gods, or the worship of the queen of heaven. It all began back there, and it's been followed on down. And in the early church, there came a time when they felt like they had to substitute to the people some female goddess to take the place of the ones they had to give up if they became Christians. If they were, uh, if they were, if they were Romans, they had to give up Venus. If they were Greeks, they had to give up, uh, who was it? Uh, they had all different names, you know, different, different places and so forth. They had these women names and, and females that the women would worship. And so, and all of it came from this Semiramis, and she was the, the one in the beginning, and it was ha all handed down. So this is what they did. They introduced the, the Mary Olive then into Christianity and said, okay, here's your queen. You can worship her. And so she is worshiped and everything. In our class, Susan Knight, I told about the time I was uh, in St. Paul and I went to the, the St. Paul Cathedral and I was just walking around and I was standing, I was standing there and every time I think about it, I laugh to myself because I think about how naive I guess I was. But I was looking all around at that building, you know, that, that, that dome and all that. 
and people were all around there and they were burning candles and different things. And I saw this woman come up and it looked like she knelt right down in front of me and started worshiping, looking at me and worshiping like that, you know. And I thought, oh my God. And I looked at her and I jumped back. And when I did, I noticed there was a statue of Mary right here. And she had come to worship, you know. But she was worshiping the statue of Mary. You know, and she, then she had knelt down in front of it. Well, I happened to be getting in between her and her worship idol. You know, so I jumped back. I said, well, let's see. I guess I better get out of here. I'm in the wrong somehow or another. I've wandered in the wrong place the wrong time. But the point I am bringing out is that there was worship for that statue, you know. Now, I'm telling you that this, is, this Mariolatry all came from that ancient uh, worship there of, uh, of Semiramis and uh, the different names that's been handed down. Different, different religions uh, have different names. Even Nimrod, Talmud is another one. Talmud is another one found in the scriptures uh, where that the, the Jews would worship Talmud. I won't go any further into that. It's just, it, it's a, a lot of names, a lot of words. It's all mythology. But I will tell you this, that this uh, Mary Olatry here, I really believe, and the Bible says it over in the Bible here, is an abomination to the Lord, to worship anything else outside of the Lord. The Lord said, have no other image, no other likeness of anything. Do you know why? Because Jesus Christ was the image of God. When Jesus would come, he would be the image of God. And he is the worship object. The object of worship of Almighty God would be Jesus Christ. Jesus manifest in flesh. Well, the Bible said he is the image of the invisible God. Praise the Lord. And so I think it's important for us to understand when you worship Jesus Christ, you worship Jesus, worship God, praise the Lord, in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me move on here. Uh, let me talk to you about the next one here, purgatory. How much time have I got? All right. The, 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 uh, the belief of purgatory. Purgatory was, uh, was a belief that when you die, it is a belief that when you die, you go to a, a place that's like hell, and, uh, and you stay there until you have, you have suffered enough to... to compensate for the sins you committed in your lifetime and then uh, after that then you can go ahead on to heaven and it's a thing like that and it's, uh, it's called the purgatory that never was in the original scriptures and you and I both know that that was another thing that was adopted from the ancient pagan world you know and it gave people a hope I don't care how wicked you are you know you you can you just go to purgatory and then you can get out of there and the way you get out of there now listen to this the way you get out of there is to have your family pray for you number one and the way they pray for you is to light candles and the way they light candles is to buy them from the church and so the can the church then has an income and has money coming in from people praying for the people who are in purgatory uh, I mentioned here not long ago about my son and I that was over in, uh, in, in, the, in an Orthodox church in Greece, uh, in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, Thessaloniki, they call it, their city. And we went into this Greek Orthodox church. And I never will forget this woman. She bought, she came in there and she bought 
enough candles to fill that whole area. I mean, everywhere. It was a wonder the place didn't catch on fire. But anyhow, and she was lighting so many candles, I thought she maybe worked for the church there, the church, the local church. No, she hadn't. She'd gone in there and paid a bunch of money, and they gave her candles, and she had candles everywhere. She put them all up, and she went around lighting all those candles because she was praying for somebody to get them out of purgatory. And uh, also, you could pay money to the church, and it would get them out of purgatory. Or somebody in the church within would pray, you know. And I'm just telling you folks that all of this was a control thing. You've got to come to us to even to get your loved ones out of the bad place in eternity for them. After they're dead, dead gone, you've got, and yet the Bible says, as a tree falleth, so shall it lie. And that's talking about eternity. If you're a wicked person and you die, you die wicked, you know. It said, let the, let, the, let the holy be holy, let the righteous be righteous still, let the unjust be unjust still, that's at the end of time. Uh, let the uh, wicked be wicked still, you know. Let, in other words, as you die, as a tree falls, so shall it lie. You know, as whatever condition, that's why you got to do what you do in your lifetime. I have a, a big, thick book on the early church writers, and uh, they would encounter these doctrines, and they would write things about them. And uh, excuse me, and they would counteract these things, and they would have to constantly refer to those scriptures in the Bible that says this and says that and so forth to counteract a lot of these different things coming out of the pagan world that was coming unto them. They were coming out of Greek Greek uh, Greek philosophy. Uh, They were coming Gnosticism, as it was called. They were coming out of uh, all kinds of pagan religions and things because people were comfortable with it and they liked it and so forth, they went along with it. And so little by little here, it all began to just fall away. And so purgatory, well, again, was a thing that was added to the people in order to give uh, the church power over the people themselves. And then, of course, there came along the the justification by works. Yet the Bible says that we are uh, justified by faith. Let me show you this very quickly here. If you'll go in your Bibles to, I think it's in Romans, uh, let me find it here, Romans chapter uh, 3. Look in Romans 3 with me for a moment. And this found in Galatians, it's found in Romans, other verses of other chapters, other books, I mean, and sometimes even extensive writings about it. This is chapter 3 of Romans. I've just chosen these few verses. 20, I'm going to start with verse 20 and read. Uh, down through a few verses here, down through verse 24. It says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, knowledge of sin. The law gave us a knowledge of sin. But now is the righteousness of God without the law and is manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith, of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe for there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and then jumping down to verse 28 therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law and so they came along and says you know what It takes more than just having faith. 
you got to have, you got to be justified by works. You're going to be justified by works. So how hard do you work? How hard do you work for God? How hard do you work and earn your way? You've, they found themselves trying to earn their way to heaven. And folks, I cannot tell you the things in history in this dark age period of time that people would do to try to earn their way into heaven. They had these guys at one point that would walk through cities and they would take the shirts off of their back and they carried whips. And as they walked through the city in a group of them, they would whip themselves with these whips. They'd slash themselves. They'd pop it over on their backs. And they'd walk and they'd pop it on their back going through the city. And they were saying, we are taking the sins of the, of the city upon us. And we are suffering for the people here because the people's sins. And the people would all stand on the side of the road and be so grateful and so thankful that these people would do that. And they became such so admired and so respected and they went all they were in germany they were in france uh, they were in, in uh, I, i'm not sure about england but they were in austria uh, they were all over different parts of europe but they would walk through there and they would whip themselves and beat themselves so they were their backs were bloody and their mess and and they they went all over europe doing this they were notorious they became a, a society within themselves all trying to find a justification that God would forgive them of their sins. Amen. That's what this monastery stuff is all about. Monasticism is called. It's where people begin to say, we're going to set ourselves apart and we're going to sacrifice and give ourselves. Jesus paid it all. You know, I mean, it, that's, the, that's the beauty of salvation. And, and whenever you go back to thinking, none of us are, none are righteous, no, not one. And, and that's true. That's why we come boldly to the throne of grace. The grace, grace of God is that you don't earn it, you haven't earned it, and you don't deserve it, but it's my goodness. And what that does is cause us to say, thank you, Jesus. We're saved by grace and that through faith. Praise God. In other words, we believe the price that Jesus gave. Now, we can say, oh, I don't believe Jesus' blood means anything. I don't believe that, you know, Jesus did anything worthwhile, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can, we can say all of those kind of things. But the truth about it is that Jesus paid the price. His suffering on the cross was for all of us. And folks, what we have to do, amen, is just say, Jesus, I love you. I thank you. And lay aside sin, praise the Lord. And the Bible said if we sin, then there is, we can, be, we can pray and ask God to forgive us. Even after you're saved, you can, you can drop the watermelon, you know. You can fumble the ball. You know, and I dare say that every one of us along the way somewhere has, has fumbled a ball here or there, you know, whatever. And all you do is just go back to that altar again and say, Jesus, forgive me. You know, I should have never talked about that dear sister or that dear brother. Or I should have never, you know, acted that way at that, you know, gathering or whatever. Whatever it might have been. And I'm just saying that we can do those things. And come back to the Lord and God forgives us. He is just to forgive us of our sins. Hallelujah. And this is the beauty. This is the beauty of salvation. And so when they heaped all of these things on the people, it got where the people felt like we've got to deliver ourselves. And nobody was, they, they, everybody knows they were sinners. They could remember, oh yeah, I remember I did this. I remember I did that. I remember this happened, that happened. I should have never done that and everything. Then they feel bad about it. And what do I do? And 
how do I get forgiveness and so forth and and so forth and they burn candles like until they almost burned the building down you know <laughs> I'm serious I, I never will forget my son and I being in that church there were a lot of people there and this woman she lit up that whole altar up there she must have had a lot of money but she's not the only one that's ever done that you know that may be of some of you that were one time you know in, in that system and uh, you felt like you had to pray for somebody you know I used to know a guy up in South Bend, Indiana that owned a bunch of drive-in uh, milkshake restaurants there, hamburger milkshake deals. Uh, he, owned, he owned a bunch of them in town. I worked for him, and that's why I know about it. But the guy would go, he'd get drunk on a Saturday night, just as drunk as he could get. But he always managed to park his car in front of his church before he passed out. That's the truth. And then he'd pass out, and the next morning, Sunday morning, he'd wake up, and he'd stagger. He'd be smelling like whiskey and old clothes all over him, you know. And he'd stagger in that church, go in there, sit down in a booth, confess all of his sins, have them all forgiven, you know, go do some penance, pay this. Pay that. He had a lot of money. Pay this to the church. Pay that. That's fine. He'd be back on his way again. You know, back all right. You know, he's on his way. He himself never repented, never was sorry. He just did it over and over and over again to the day he died. And I'm just saying here today, aren't you glad for God's simple plan? Anybody can be saved. You don't have to be rich to be saved. You can be poor to be saved, praise the Lord. And you're better off if you're poor. The poor heard him gladly, the Bible says, you know. You're better off to be poor because the poor heard him gladly. I am saying this to us today is that this wonderful grace of God that's been given to us, though we did not deserve it, we do not deserve it, we have no right to it. You know, let's just be honest. You know, it's of Abraham anyhow. You know, we're not direct descendants of Abraham. We are through Abraham now by him being, by Jesus Christ being through faith, through Jesus Christ, we are of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jews, but he's also the father of faith. So therefore, if we come to Jesus Christ through faith, then we are the children of faith. Praise the Lord. The Bible teaches us that. And so through this connection, then we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And the biggest thing God wants us to do is when we come to church to say, Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Don't be unthankful. I don't care how little you have. I don't care what happened this week. I don't care what happened yesterday. Say, Jesus, I love you, and I thank you, Lord. You might have, you know, had the worst day of your life yesterday, but just say, Jesus, I thank you, Lord, because you loved me when I was yet a sinner. <coughs> when I was unlovable, you loved us. And this is the beauty of grace. We are saved by grace, and that through faith. Our faith is our response to God's grace. He died for the whole world, but the whole world will not be saved. But those who believe in him and come to him, repent of their sins, baptize Jesus, all of that is an act of believing. If we that do those things, then God forgives us of our sins and then we are saved as well. And I just want to say this in closing here and I'm going to wind this all up, but the justification by, uh, justification by works uh, was a thing that uh, it was totally wrong and it had people you know, trying to do everything in the world to try to save themselves. And then I'm going to close out with these two things. One was then 
indulgences, indulgences, which was buying trinkets from the church and you put money and you gave them money and then they're buying those trinkets. Those trinkets had spiritual value and you'd hang them around your neck, put them on your wrist, put them in your pocket, I don't know, all kind of things. And they had special, and the reason they did that was because that the popes in those days was trying to build St. Peter's Basilica as it's, as it's known, or the cathedral there in St. Paul. It's a beautiful edifice, I've been there. It is one of the most beautiful edifices in the world, St. Peter's, but it was a huge price paid for it. And those, those uh, men would go up into all through Germany and France and they would sell these trinkets and raise the money and bring, and bring it down there into that area. Julius II was the Pope at that time. Later on, it was Leo the Tenth. Julius II was Pope for 10 years and then Leo the Tenth came along and he was, uh, he was uh, this was around the first part of the 1500s, right around 1501, 1510 through that period of time. Then Leo X came along, he was Pope then for about nine years, and then following him, of course, was another one, and he was Pope for about, uh, about another 11 years. And along in this time, they were trying to build this edifice, and they had, you know, Michelangelo and, and Leonardo da Vinci doing all this painting and statue and stuff, and they were trying to raise money to, to pay for them, pay for them and others like them and everything, and so, and doing all of that, they were breaking the back to the common people who were simply trying to be spiritual all through Europe and thinking that they were doing the will of God by just giving and giving and giving and giving. And they sold these indulgences and so forth. This came a big item. And then finally, they had a, a doctrine they introduced called the infallibility of the Pope. Whatever the Pope's word said was, it was infallible. It was more infallible even than the Bible because it was the most recent. He was the vicar of Christ. In other words, he took the place of Christ. He was the Christ substitute. And when Christ went to heaven, the Pope was the vicar of Christ, which meant that he was a mouthpiece for Christ. And so whatever he would say would be like Jesus saying it and so forth. And it became the infallibility of the Pope and his words became infallible. And, uh, and so if he declared something, made a law, if he says those indulgences would shorten your stay in purgatory by, you know, 100 years, uh, you, you definitely want to get that, you know. And, and on, you understand what I'm saying here? And it just had a fell away until you got into the dark ages and all these things came on it. And starting next week, I'm going to tell you what happened, how did they begin to come out of this. And, camera, and, and people begin to break loose from that. And one thing after another and after another, and it's called the Reformation. And I'm going to start with that. There's some marvelous things that develop. And uh, I just want to say here today that you and I are privileged that somebody somewhere in our background, way back there, some of our you know, other forefathers or somebody, that they heard the gospel and they came to a Pentecostal church or they came to a Baptist church or they came to some denominational church that was a little bit out of the ordinary and said, we want to find God, we want to feel God, we want the presence of God. Praise the Lord. And what God did, amen, changed their lives, changed, the, changed everything around them. And you and I, praise the Lord, have much to be thankful for. Let me just say one thing in closing here, and that is, so, when you come to the house of God, folks, worship God. Say, Jesus, I am thankful. 
everything you've done for me, everything you've done for my family, everything you've done in my home, Lord. And don't, don't say, oh, I, you know, I don't have much to be thankful for. No, sir. The fact that you're sitting in here breathing air right now. <laughs> you got a heartbeat going. Amen. You can be thankful. Praise the Lord. And right now, let's just lift our hands and thank the Lord and praise him together. Jesus, would you stand with us and let's just worship you. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. Bless this congregation. Bless these wonderful people. Lord, we love you so much. You're so good to us, God. We are so unworthy, but you're so good. And we'll praise you, Lord, and we'll praise you the rest of our lives, and we'll praise you all the time, Lord. And Lord, one of these days, we're going to see you face to face, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and blessings to us all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Remain standing as our musicians sing. Oh, let's worship the Lord today.